Trey Ratcliffe is best known for his vibrant landscapes, but he's also a student of human nature. His photography business is fueled by combining compelling landscapes with daring post-production and adding a dash of insightful marketing. On today's show, Trey shares some of the thinking behind this approach. The lessons that he's learned may help your photography as well. Welcome to the Nimble Photographer Podcast, hosted by me, Derek Story. My quest is to find artists who have created their own definition of success. Yes, finances play a role in all of our lives, but are they the only measure? And how can you put a price on the experiences along the way? Today we travel to New Zealand to learn from Trey. Thanks so much for coming along. One of the things that I was thinking about when we were going to launch this podcast was I needed to find someone that was both an artist and good at business. And of course, my mind went right to you. No, yeah. Well, <laughs> when you say good with business, you're, you might only be seeing the successes, but not the uh, flotsam of failures behind me. Well, you know, exactly. But isn't that, that's just part of it, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you what my ratio of success to uh, failure is, but it's always more failures, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it feel that way when you're a creative person? Oh, absolutely. And I'm, you know, completely full of self-doubt all the time. I think it's healthy, actually, to be like 75% confident and 75% full of self-doubt. So that adds up to about 150. So you're kind of right in the middle. But, you know, you have had some success. We, we, can't, uh, we can't get away from that. You know, maybe some other show will talk about the failures. That could be, that could be a fun show. But uh, today, I kind of wanted you to pick a project that you go, hey, you know, this felt good artistically. This felt good business-wise, and uh, I feel like talking about it. Do you have one of those? Yeah, I do. Maybe you only have two. <laughs> yeah, we can get together another time and talk about all the failures. I'll just touch on that real briefly, is that our society, schooling and the workplace and everything, they are all built around punishing failure and rewarding success. And, you know, they it is a very strange school system that we have really like, let's say you have a class with 20 people in it, you know, only a couple people can be like the best, right. Can get like a pluses and a's and, and to be at the top of the class, right. Only a few people could be in the top 10%, which ends up making the other 90% of people feel like failures. And this is a very negative thing that's reinforced year after year after year until you get to about age 20. And now this is reinforced that you, if you're in the 90%, which most people are statistically, you just kind of feel like a failure and you're always getting punished and you're not getting rewarded. You like, Oh, why bother? But this is, this is a terrible system in a lot of ways. Cause that's not how life is. Cause once you're a grown up, you can have as many failures as you want. The punishment is minimal or nil. And you have to try a bunch of different things just to have successes, right? Real life is not like school. So I think school really fucks up people's brains and takes them a while to deprogram themselves and to realizing you can do a bunch of different things. And it's okay if 90% are failures because they will be statistically. The 10% that are successes will be awesome. And in fact, and in fact, uh, to add on to that, those failures are all, often really great learning experiences. And then ultimately, you know, things we learn from those help us uh, succeed somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can learn a lot from every failure. Sometimes you don't always learn. Sometimes you make the same mistakes a couple times, but that's all right. You know, it's totally fine. 
And I think a big part of it is not to take yourself so seriously. That's a, a big thing. So if people have failures, they, 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 then themselves they feel like a failure rather than having a project or an idea be a failure. A project or an idea is not all-encompassing of a person's identity. And too often people tie up their ego and their identity into a particular project or idea, and that's a fallacy from the get-go. It is. It is. I totally agree with that. You know, it's so funny uh, when we talk about things that, that don't turn out the way we think they will. Every idea that I've had that has failed, when I thought of it and like the first 24 hours I was embracing it, it felt like the best idea in the world. You know, <laughs> it really right. did. So it's really hard to tell, I think, sometimes uh, at the very beginning, and you just have to go with it a bit and, and flesh it out and do your homework and all that kind of stuff, because enthusiasm, a lot of times, will sort of color our view of, you know, where this thing might go. Yeah, that's true. I'll tell you, one good idea is this podcast, and I think it's going to help a lot of people, inspire them, give them confidence. And one of my favorite quotes related to what you just said, is from Winston Churchill, who seemed to be just this nonstop quote generator. He said, uh, success is the ability to go from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. Oh, man, I love that. That is so good. <laughs> so when we talk about, uh, you know, one of your projects, is there, you know, any failures that's leading up to it? Or, you know, how does this mix, uh, you know, working for you on your current stuff? I'll talk about the success story that's that's happening right now. And there were definitely failures that led up to some learning of it. And I think probably our biggest success now is the launch of our fine art business. We, we've decided to go a little differently. So I do giant prints, quite big, like 10 feet across, nine feet across, very large format kind of stuff. I've released now only uh, 42 works. I did series one which was 21 different, my favorite photographs, and we only did three prints each. We priced them quite high because there were only three available. The first two, print one of three and two of three, those are priced at 75,000 US. And the third print was priced at 95,000 US because it's like the last seat on the plane. And so we launched this about three years ago and so far, it has actually made millions of dollars, which is uh, fantastic. And we have, um, we have prints with collectors all around the world, and it's really made them. I mean, the, the money side is nice, of course. It pays the bills, and you know, more than that, it keeps the, the company going. We just have a small art company here with about um, you know, eight or nine people. Beyond that, it's really made the collectors very happy. I visited you know, many of their homes, and we have art hangings and and they have their friends over, and people just like to have beautiful, unique things in their in their homes. And I learned a lot about this from reading this book. It's called, man, I'm going to get the name wrong, something like the $17 million Stuffed Shark, which is a, a book about um, modern contemporary art and the artist named Damien Hurst. And you know, people look at a, a stuffed shark that's floating in formaldehyde and wonder, like, how is that thing worth $17 million? It's ridiculous, right? Completely insane, right? But then you read this book, and it's written by this New York Times bestselling author, and he makes a logical, rational, compelling case why it's worth that much. So I, I learned quite a bit from reading that book. So that's one of the things that, that led up to this project. Did you have any, uh, you know, stumbles along the way, you know, maybe other projects that kind of led up to this that didn't quite go uh, the way that you want? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think... 
like a lot of people, I about ten, ten well, maybe eight or nine years ago, I started like selling prints on SmugMug or whatever other sites, you know. And I, I think like most photographers, I'm prolific in that I just constantly taking photos and. I don't love all my photos, but I think there's some good ones in there. And I probably, I have like hundreds that I think are pretty good. And so I like put hundreds and hundreds of photos up for sale at a, you know, pretty attainable price point. And they kind of sold, but not really. And I was like, man, this is a failure. I was like, I can't, my photos are objective. I'm like, I'm really hard on myself, but I like, objectively, these are pretty good photos, but why aren't, and I had a big audience, you know, millions. I was like, why aren't people buying them? What's the deal? And then I came to realize there's, uh, you know, most of what I study is not photography. I study um, sociology and biology and genetics. And so by having a really diverse set of interests, I've learned a lot of things about human nature. And one of them basically is, you know, this paralysis by analysis. And then if you give people hundreds and hundreds of choices, they just can't choose. It doesn't mean they don't like them. It doesn't mean they can't afford them. It just means that humans have difficulty making choices when you have hundreds and hundreds of possibilities. So that was one of the learnings uh, that went into it. And then there's like dozens of others that eventuated into this new business. That's why things like Instagram uh, do well in the sense that you know, we were presented with a UI that's very simple. There's, there's an image. Good photographers make it very clear what that image is. And then you go to the next image. There, there isn't that paralysis of like, oh, I got this whole gallery of stuff I have to look at. My brain hurts. And I think there is something... You know, we know this as photographers. This is true for composition as well, right? So I think there is something to that distilling process that you're talking about. And, um, you know, along the way, I've always enjoyed, uh, I should get a little plug in here for, for Skylum, because along the way, I've so enjoyed post-processing photos. I got into it right away. You know, I got right into it with HDR, and that's why I ended up uh, partnering with you guys and Alex on Aurora HDR, and now I use that and Luminar quite a bit. And that's kind of been a, a little bit of a difference maker in that when you when you look at my photos, I've used it on all of the things in our fine arts, but I've used it probably in like at least half. People, we're, we're in this bubble, right? Photographers are in this bubble. But people not in the photography world, they don't understand post-processing and they don't even really, they don't even think about it in terms of, of post-processing. So when they see an image that just really jumps out and is different and is obviously to us completely post-processed, but they don't think about it like that. They just think, oh, that's cool, man. That's really interesting and different. It doesn't look like a normal photo. Uh, that's actually what collectors want. They don't want stuff that looks like photos because, honestly, you know, you mentioned Instagram or whatever, 500px. They're all – everyone's a great photographer. It, that's no longer a differentiating thing. Everyone can take good photos. There's great cameras, all kinds of stuff. I think the difference maker is in the post-processing and the storytelling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And storytelling uh, with a capital S on that, because, you know, the, the post-processing is what helps you tell that story, which makes uh, this a unique work. And I totally agree with you. I mean, when I go to a good restaurant and I'm looking forward to a good meal, I all I care about is what you know comes out and is set in front of me. I'm not going to overanalyze exactly you know what the chef did in the back. In fact, I don't think I want to know to tell you the truth. Right. <laughs> but but you're right. That final presentation that's where the impact is, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Like I, for example, I love music. I listen to music a lot when I process, or you know, I go to Burning Man. I listen to all kinds of crazy EDM stuff. I have no idea how they do that. I know there's a lot of 
post-processing of audio stuff going on. They use all these crazy tools and I, I kind of watched some videos because I'm interested in it, but like, that's just a different mindset. So what I just listen to the music and I love it and it makes me feel all groovy. Uh, but I'm sure that other EDM people, they, they just, they listen to this stuff there and they're really having, analyzing it the whole time. I'm the same way, man. I walk through airports and I look at photos on the wall. I'm like, who, who approved a budget to buy that horrible photo in this airport? Who is in charge? It's ridiculous. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, what do you think about the idea? Because, you know, one thing about photographers is that we have photographers that are, you know, way over on the fine art side. And then we have photographers that are, uh, let's say, totally focused on, on making money. Where is that? How does that work? I mean, do you feel like having thinking about business compromises the art of photography or how do you do that balancing act? How does that work for you? There, there is definitely a violent collision between money and art, for sure. And it's a very delicate thing to balance. I do go by this wonderful adage that I've seen repeated many times. This goes kind of counter to your question away. But like you should do three things with your life. Do one thing that you love. That's like a hobby that you just can't get enough of. Do one thing that makes you money. And then find one other thing that keeps you healthy and in shape. Okay? Now... There is no law that says all these have to be the same thing. Maybe two can be the same thing. Maybe three can be the same thing. Um, I feel lucky that in my case, all three are the same. Because when you're a landscape photographer, you end up hiking around a lot. You carry a lot of junk around. So that kind of keeps me in shape, more or less. I love it. You know, I'm obsessed with it. And then I'm also lucky that it, it makes money. But these don't all have to be the same thing. And sometimes when you try to cram money into photography, these two things, what you love and how you make money, they can uh, diverge from each other like uh, magnets, right? Like the same poles of magnets. And like, for example, I know a lot of people that love photography, but a good way to make money is study ways like weddings, right? And anyone that's a decent photographer can also do weddings. And so you just end up either uh, shooting weddings, which you might kind of like, but you don't love. And then so when you're not shooting wed weddings, you're planning weddings or trying to book more weddings. And but that's not really why you love it. So sometimes just trying to shoehorn money into the situation can make you not love the hobby as much as you once did. Also, we also come from a little bit of an older world where you kind of just do one thing with your life. But we're moving into a different world where you can do multiple things with your life. And photographers on the whole, are very clever, smart, left-brained people. And that means they can use their brain to do many things. They don't have to use their brain to do photography. They can use their brain to do other things that make money. So I always do kind of encourage that because I think the, the artistic side is so nurturing to your spirit and to your soul. I think uh, it's good to keep it pure. And if you're having trouble making money with it, just make money in some other way and keep the, keep the art pure because I think it's best for your, for your soul. I agree. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that, that we're seeing more and more, and in fact, uh, this is part of my life too, is that, you know, we have multiple revenue streams. So we, we do a little of this and a little of that. And I totally agree with what you're saying, that it doesn't have to be all or nothing into photography or, or weddings or whatever. And I would go so far as uh, building on what you're saying is don't take on assignments or, or do things with your camera that you don't like 
or that might dampen your enthusiasm for photography because in the end that that's a losing proposition on on all fronts you won't be a good businessman and you may lose a passion uh, that you have i think that's that's terrific advice and you know even the fact that i'm doing this podcast right now I get to talk about photography, but I'm not taking pictures. And those sort of things, uh, I think, can help keep our photography in a happy place. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's so much uh, negativity and nonsense in the world. It's just ridiculous. And I think it's important for, you know, I'm not saying this in a solipsistic way, but important for like people like us to talk about how awesome and beautiful the world is and not get caught up in all the nonsense and inspire people to create. Um, I think it's up to artists and creatives to save the world, you know? I don't think we can count on governments or corporations or whatever, maybe artists working in coordination with open-minded corporations, we can help spread that word more. But anything that we can do to help people be more more mindful and more conscious, this is kind of one of my own personal modus operandi. And I think, honestly, that photography is the best way to be mindful because when you're, you know, it is difficult to teach meditation and all this sort of thing. But when you're taking a photo or processing a photo on your computer, you're just very present. You're not worried about the future. You're not vexed about the past. You're just being present and you're creating and then you're sharing your creations with the world. And the more people that we can encourage to do that, I think the better it is for the whole world. You know, I think that is a perfect landing spot right there. <laughs> I do. I, I agree, Trey. Hey, for people that want to find out a little bit more about what you're doing, what's the one spot you'd send them? Where, where, where should they go online? Um, they should definitely check out the blog. It's at stuckincustoms.com. Every day I put up a new photo and I tell a little story on there. And also I have a new book coming out pretty soon. It's about uh, loosely about Instagram and what a disaster it is and the mass uh, delusional behavior we see it creating in society. But it's also how to about, about how to stay Zen on social media and um, just how to keep your mind right while you're engaged with all this nonsense that's happening on the internet. That's cool. What's the name of the book? It's got quite the long title. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the title is how to fake your way into getting rich on Instagram. And the subtitle is Influencer Fraud, Selfies, Anxiety, Ego, and Mass Delusional Behavior. I cannot wait for that book to come out. <laughs> so. It's a real page turner. <laughs> <laughs> Trey, thanks for taking time out. Thanks for your thoughts. Really uh, much to chew on here, and I so appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you, big guy. All right. Talk to you later. Yes, sir. A big thanks to Trey for joining us this week. I'll be back next time with another artist and more thoughts behind their creation. Until then, this is Derek Story, the nimble photographer, wishing you great success in all your endeavors. So do something new, guys. Let's mix it up. This podcast is made possible by select members of Patreon. You can learn more and pledge your support for the digital story and the nimble photographer by visiting www.patreon.com slash the digital story. That's www.patreon.com slash the digital story.